if I could do this, if I could light fires every day without matches and care for myself in this very fundamental way, then I can do anything. The skills themselves were very powerful doorways into a sense of personal empowerment and possibility for myself. But it was interesting, the kind of the other layer around safety that sparked for me in that year was I was I was leaning into fear. You know, there was I had a whole heap of fears. There was fear of wild dogs. There was fear of the dark. There was, you know, just fear of being alone all the time. But I was also really drawn to leaning into fear, to leaning into that edge of safety. So, you know, taking myself off on overnight wanders where I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have a phone. I, you know, I wasn't safe. And, and that aliveness that came from that and that sense of I just had to trust in my own capacity and being held in some larger sense of trust in mystery. That's Claire Dunn, author and rewilding facilitator, among other things, which you'll soon hear about. I enjoyed this conversation so much. It turns out that Claire is also into dream work, so I share a dream at one point in this episode and also got so much out of her reflections on rewilding and connecting with our ecological selves and that belonging and how when we heal the rift between ourselves and the more than human world, when we cultivate that connection with the more than human world, it really brings us into deeper contact with ourselves. So she has this phrase, a culture of initiated adults who can bring their gifts to the world. And that just lights me up because one of my favorite things is hearing how different people are drawn to bring their gifts to the world and contribute to the healing of our greater shared living being that is life on earth. And in this tapestry that we're weaving, you know, which thread it belongs to each of us to pick up. So very cool to hear how Claire connects that with rewilding and with connecting with our ecological selves. I also really appreciated what Claire had to say about her own eco-awakening shortly after leaving home and her time involved in grassroots activism really focused on protecting ecosystems, shifting toward a focus on the shift in consciousness, the changes in our minds and hearts that we need to maintain to support a life-sustaining society, and the feeling back then that maybe it's abandoning ship if we don't focus our efforts on protection and also coming back around to the importance of that now. I'm feeling that as well at this point in my life. Not that I want to get caught up in the urgency and the sense of emergency. If you heard my last episode with Anne Nguyen, we were talking about this overstimulated desperation and sense of, sense of urgency that drives us beyond what we can do while still staying healthy. I don't want to get caught up in that kind of urgency, but I'm also at the same time recognizing a certain urgency in the sense that it is time sensitive. (laughs) Protecting a lot of the ecosystems and species and people that are in danger right now, it's a now or never kind of thing. So thinking about that, you know, in in the same sense of which thread or threads do we each pick up that blend of the shift in consciousness and the holding actions... I also wanted to mention that when Claire refers to Joanna and Fran, for those who don't know, she's talking about Joanna and Fran Macy facilitating the work that reconnects. And there's a new book out now called A Wild Love for the World, which is in part 
by Joanna Macy, but largely about Joanna Macy and how her work has influenced different people around the world in the work that they're now doing. It's such a beautiful look at Joanna's story, her journey over decades, the work that she's done, the contributions that she's made, and the contributions that all these incredible writers have brought to us as well. Claire is actually mentioned in one of the chapters there as someone who contributed to the writing, so that was fun to run into her name as I was getting ready to prepare this episode for you. I'm also going to link to Claire's books in the show notes. One of hers is called Rewilding the Urban Soul, and I am looking forward to reading that one myself because I'm currently looking at moving back to the urban, suburban, sprawling, concrete realm where I grew up, which has lots of beauty to it, but is very different from the spacious, rural, remote landscape I've been in for the last almost seven years. So speaking of that transition, the one other thing I want to let you know before we get into this conversation with Claire is that for the next couple of months, I'll be releasing new episodes on the full moons only. I'm in a big transition with this moving and also putting together a team for turning season. The Dreamers Den and turning season podcasts have been a totally solo process up until now, and I'm ready for this to grow. So I am going to keep this sustainable for me by slowing down just a bit for the next couple of months. I also know because I hear from many of you weeks after an episode that you finally got a chance to listen to it. So I know that you two are swimming in this incredible current of so much information so fast and it'll be okay if I don't produce quite as much for you to take in in these next couple months. In the meantime, I'm wrapping up a round of a program I host called Healing Season, which is an online group program where we're learning practical wisdom from Chinese medicine about the connection between our emotions and our physical health and practices for balance, as well as practical wisdom from the work that reconnects and relating to our well-being in the context of being part of this larger ecological body of life on earth. And in March, I'll be hosting a couple groups for a dreaming season where we'll be diving deep into group dream work Each person will pick an intention for the sorts of insights or inspiration or healing they're inviting in through their dreams and will walk where the mysterious path of group dream work takes us, which is never predictable and always rewarding. So if you are interested in diving into any of that with me, you can contact me through the contact page at turningseason.com. And now this month's full moon episode with Claire Dunn. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar, here with your dedicated dose of active hope. I'm delighted to bring you these conversations with the inspired individuals who are collectively shifting us to a life-sustaining society. You'll hear from all kinds of healers and change makers playing their unique part in the great turning. From healing personal trauma to visionary thinking, decolonization to building composting toilets, new innovations to bridging social divides. There are thousands of reasons and ways to participate. Keep listening to find out more of what's being done already and what's possible. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and come to turningseason.com to connect. 
My guest today is Claire Dunn. Claire is a writer, speaker, barefoot explorer, rewilding facilitator, and founder of Nature's Apprentice. Claire is passionate about human rewilding and believes that a reclaiming of our ecological selves and belonging is key to regenerating wildness on the planet. For the last 15 years, she's been facilitating individuals to dive deeply into the mysteries of nature and psyche through the pathways of deep nature connection, ancestral earth skills, deep ecology, eco-psychology, soul-centric nature-based practice, village building, dance, ceremony, and contemporary wilderness rites of passage. Claire's the author of her memoir, My Year Without Matches, which tells the story of her year living wild. Her soon-to-be-released memoir, Rewilding the Urban Soul, explores how we might embody wild consciousness within a modern city context. Claire lives in Melbourne, where she lovingly tends her garden, community, and her own wild heart. I'm so happy you could be here with me today, Claire. Thanks for joining me. Mm, thanks so much for the invitation, Leilani. I would love to open up this glimpse we get through your bio into um, what moves you a little bit more by asking a question from the work that reconnects. I'll, I'll invite you to finish this sentence. Some things I love about being alive on earth are. Mm, great opening question, especially for this um, morning time, early, early-ish morning time in, in Melbourne. I'm looking out onto a um, a green swathe of bushland which borders the um, Yarra River or the Indigenous name, the, the Birrarung. And it, yeah, it's a, it's a gratitude question. So it's really appropriate for this time of the morning for me. And um, what I love about being alive on this planet right now in this time is really that the, the opportunity to... Um, to really see the beauty of the world in smaller and smaller and subtler ways. Mm. And I think that's a product partly of, of getting older and, um, and realising the preciousness of my attention and where I put it, mm -hmm. um, coming into yeah, a greater understanding of one of the gifts of our species being that of self-reflexive consciousness so being able to really reflect on the on the beauty and the diversity of life on this planet and also this fragile planet time we're on it it you know when something is teetering on the edge it makes it all the more precious so right now for me it's um you know a moment I'll share from <clears throat> dusk last night is being down on the river on the on the jetty and I took my drum down on the jetty and my with uh, my partner was with me and um, it was just at that really last last light and the huge flying foxes were starting to um, spread out across the sky they they um, they camped just down river from me the mm. great flying foxes so they had just set off for the northern suburbs of Melbourne to you know on their nightly raids of the fruit trees of the suburban <laughs> and they're just such incredibly ancient striking creatures so they're flying over us and 
the ducks are all finding their nighttime roosts and the, <clears throat> the river is just this kind of black glassy serpent kind of carving itself through the landscape. And, and just that time of day is like so full of beauty and mystery. It's my favourite time of the day and we were, we were just spontaneously drumming and singing a little dusk song together which is not something we do very often but it was just so precious and then just spontaneously took off our clothes and dived in the water uh -huh. swam in that inky blackness for mm. a few minutes as long as we were brave enough to and um you know they're they're the moments where I am so grateful for this physical body to be alive this time, um, engaging with all my senses in this world right where I am, right where I am, which is happens to be in this beautiful part of Melbourne. Wow. I love that. I, I feel like you brought me there with you. So mm. I'm getting this, this gift of my imagined experience of the inky river and the ducks and the drumming and very beautiful. Thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. And on the other side of our outstretched arms, I want to invite you to answer a question from further along the spiral, um, the spiral of the work that reconnects that is. And this one is the open sentence. When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is Mm, thank you for that question. It's, yeah, it's been a little while since I've been on the receiving end of these um, quintessential open sentences of the work that reconnects. And uh, it's really lovely to be, to be asked them. Mm. Um, right now, what, what breaks my heart when I look around and see what's happening on the planet is it's just the, the small and large acts of desecration. You know, desecration for me has this sense of um, breaking the sacred covenant that we have yeah. with this planet, with being, being caretakers on this planet. And, um, you know, at, the, at one end of the spectrum, it's, it's seeing the, the plastic water bottles and the rubbish that, get clogged in the tree branches of the river, these little clouds of rubbish that, you know, someone somewhere has tossed into the street and it's been washed into this river that is such a sacred, sacred river to so many of us. And so that's something that I, you know, see every day and, mm -hmm. and uh, feel, feel a sense of loss of the sacred covenant and yet also on the larger scale when I, particularly for me, I have such a, a relationship with forests and a resonance with forests. So when I see and hear of the desecration of forests around the world and, and, and definitely in this country still, the, still the logging of our old growth forests, um, it breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. It breaks my heart to know that that is still happening and to sometimes see it with my own eyes yeah that's that's what really moves me yeah mm. thank you for sharing that 
and for the word desecration. That's not a word that I hear or use very often, but I feel it in my body when you say it that way, just that that that's the heartbreaking piece of seeing a lot of these things that are happening is that we know there's a sacredness to it. That's and to, right. And to see it treated in this way is, is heartbreaking. Yeah. And I haven't said that word for a long time. It just, just emerged. And yeah. So true for what I, what I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I might be using it more now because that really right. just struck and rung true for me. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'd love to know more reading your bio. I'm it's so full of this, these mysterious, deep and fascinating practices that you're naming, you know, the soul centric nature based and eco psychology and all this kind of thing, the rites of passage work that you've been involved in. And I wonder if you want to share maybe a little bit of your story, how you ended up connecting with mm. this realm of work and what led you to spend a year living wild. Yeah. Did you, were you born in a family connected to living in this way or how did that come about? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's such an interesting, um, yeah, to reflect on how much of it's, you know, nature and nurture. How did I come to be, um, to be doing this work that is so clearly my, my soul work, you know, it feels like such, um, such a core part of me, but it has been a, a roundabout kind of root really I did grow up in a family um, a large family of five kids we all lived on a farm so we grew up you know with with close close relationship and connection to the more than human world we lived on a river and um, the big garden my parents are both horticulturalists so there was always I was in the garden I was on the river I was climbing the trees there wasn't much screen time it was you know it was one of those the last child in the woods kind of lifestyles that Richard Louvre talks about. Mm -hmm. But it certainly wasn't um, in any way, uh, the culture wasn't one of, um, you know, understanding of the ecological crisis or any kind of, you know, intentional earth care beyond, you know, the maintenance of beauty, the cultivation of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, but it certainly was a, was a foundation piece because when I went to university and moved out of home and moved to Sydney and the world started opening up for me in my late teens, early 20s, what I found, found myself drawn to were those who were, um, <clears throat> who was talking about and acting on behalf of the earth. And this was, you know, a relatively new cultural kind of concept for me. And so during those formative years when I left home, I... I had what I kind of now understand as a as an eco awakening, mm -hmm. which for me at the time was this heartbreaking understanding, um, this heartbreaking kind of realization that we were destroying the very life support systems upon which we rely. And um, I remember having this experience standing on on top of a stump of a huge brush box tree looking out over a clear-cut forest and feeling the truth of that in my body. And this is not something that I was privy to growing up. And that moment was pivotal in my life. I think Joanna talks about a similar kind of moment for her when her knees buckled from under her as she realised the, the, the truth of the ecological crisis that we're uh, undergoing, witnessing. Mm -hmm. And so from, 
from that moment, I really turned my attention towards, um, you know, that sphere of action that is um, that is the holding, the holding actions, that sphere of activism that Joanna talks holding talks of holding actions, which for me meant pretty much the better part of a decade dedicated to grassroots activism, which involved all the campaigning and political lobbying, media work, on ground work. Um, direct action work on behalf of forests and marine ecosystems um, all up and down the east coast of Australia <clears throat> and Tasmania. So I came to work for, you know, organisations like the Wilderness Society for many years um, and it was passion work, absolutely passion work. But what started to happen sometime in that period was I, I started to see and realise that there was very strong limits to the success of these campaigns. And the limitation was, was realising that people could only change their behaviour or vote or, or back a campaign or care. They could only care as much as they actually had a connection to these places mm-hmm. and, moreover, a connection to the sense of being part of this web of life. Because without that connection, there was no, there was no, there was no root, rootedness in, in, uh, in earth love. So this kind of realisation at the same time as this kind of inner stirring I had towards a greater understanding of myself and my role on this planet. And so I started to, to notice that my attention was turning more towards uh, spirituality. I was studying Buddhism at the time, and also really turning towards the human nature connection. You know, how do we um, address this underlying root cause of the ecological crisis, which is our profound disconnection from the earth in Western culture? And so this led me to um, a whole range of study. Initially, certainly deep ecology and the work that reconnects and I um, I was lucky enough to attend Joanna's, um, Joanna and Fran at the time ran a month-long training in Western Australia. It was their first 30-day residential training um, and I was 25 at the time and happened to be lucky enough to, to make it there to, to get a spot and it was trans- just transformational. Yeah. In this inquiry that I was holding within myself at really shifted my um my focus it gave me permission in lots of ways to uh to honor my inquiry into my spirituality and to honor my inquiry into the kind of addressing the root causes of of separation um and from there I started I started running weekend workshops which um another friend who was on the course and I called earthworks so we ran these weekend workshops, which was purely based in the work that reconnects for many years. And really, I kind of cut my facilitation teeth on the work that reconnects and really went quite deeply into all the different kind of processes, the incredible processes that Joanna had designed and how they would work in different contexts. Um, and really, it gave me, yeah, it gave me a kind of doorway into like a really it was it was a lot of bridging for me. It, it gave me a sense of bridging personal change and social change and these deeper inquiries, these kind of eco-psychological inquiries that were happening within me. And then 
the next kind of stepping stone, I started to get very interested in depth psychology and Jungian psychology and dream work. And when I was about 27, 28, which is that classic kind of Saturn return period, what started to happen was a uh, there was a correlation between what was being offered on the external world and what was happening internally. Internally, I was going through quite a, um, a struggle with leaving the the um, holding actions and moving more into the, the kind of um, shift in consciousness, which is what I was really starting to get interested in. But it was, I felt like I was abandoning ship. It was incredibly difficult struggle to, um, to actually make that decision to leave my job with wilderness society and to turn my attention to this other sphere of, um, of action of the great turning, which was new for me and exciting and alluring, but quite uncertain and terrifying. So I started, um, I started studying with, uh, with a, an organization called nature philosophy in wilderness survival skills and, and kind of earth-based spirituality and shamanic practice. And it just opened up a whole world for me um, that felt so right. You know, when you find something that's, it's like it grabs hold of your ankles and says, this is, this is something you have to stay with. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I was also experiencing quite a strong, now what I now understand as a kind of initiatory journey. Um, which was reflected in my dreams, in my changing appetites for what I was reading and thinking and the desire to spend a lot of time alone in the forest. Um, and I was reading a lot of Bill Plotkin's work, Soulcraft and Nature and the Human Soul and Wild Mind, and that was strongly resonating with me in terms of this stage of life that is about initiate, uh, initiation. It is about the draw to understanding oneself, which begins with understanding oneself in relationship to the more than human world. So this is where I started. Um, I under I enacted my first vision quest and went over to America and studied at these uh, tracking wilderness survival shamanic schools. I did my own training in vision quest protection. And in that time of, it was such a time of deep allurement I was just absolutely magnetized towards this deep work which seemed to me not on a rational level but on a body level like this was the thing for me to address in my own life that rift of separation between myself and the more than human world this was the thing these you know they're indigenous teachings essentially and it was during that time that I decided I want to spend wanted to spend a year in the woods or as we say here, a year in the bush. Uh -huh. um, and so I helped kind of curate a very small group of people um, on a block of land that backed onto lots and lots of acres of, of um, forest. And uh, 2010 is when I landed in that, that year of um, living wild and that was that was just such a transformational experience the design of it was really um very very simple it was you know build your own shelter out of materials you find on the land um make your own fires without matches put put into practice all the skills of of long-term wilderness living as well as nature observation and tracking 
and, and expanded awareness and silence and, and ceremony and really, you know, turn one's attention to the relationship that's been ignored in Western culture, which is that of the more than human world. And so really I spent a, most of that year alone, even though I was there with others, I was really quite a lone wolf and wanted to be and needed to be because that was that year uh, cracked me open in lots of ways that I needed to be cracked open um, and kind of opened up this, <clears throat> the whole, really the doorway for me into um, being able to offer work that most deeply resonates with me, this soul-centric, um, deeply imaginative, deeply connected, relational um, way of living with the more than human world and with the human world in our communities mm-hmm. um, and, and really coming to see in my own story and, and in more recent years in other stories how this journey of soul initiation unfolds, how it kind of looks and feels and shows up in us in Western culture, that urge, that desire, that kind of um, inherent inherent kind of movement of the human spirit shows up still asking to be asking to be answered um, and you know I really feel passionate about being one of those people who who is in some way literate in in the language of nature and soul in the crossovers between human nature and uh, wild nature and being able to guide others into into those wild journeys which really um at their core are about coming to know what our true purpose is, our gifts, our, our essence that we can bring to the world, which is really all we can possibly ask for in ourselves in these times is like, what, what is actually mine to bring? What is mine to give? And, and how, might that, how might that manifest? And that really is about creating a, a kind of, um, you know, culture of, a culture of initiated adults who bring their gifts to the world in the time that this time that we need them so so deeply so urgently that's a roundabout kind of long story of <laughs> a few of the stepping stones yeah that was a wonderful story and i like i love so many of the stepping stones in that story um the the thing that you just said at the end there i want to highlight about this this deeper connection and healing that rift of separation and tending this relationship with the more than human world with your own wildness was also, I mean, this is your, your calling and your gift and the the place you're drawn to Mm. contribute in the world, but also what you said about that connection, allowing us each to a, a way to discover what our sense of purpose is and what our personal role is, which might not be helping other people rewild necessarily, but that Mm. depth of connection as opposed to separation, really bringing us in deeper contact with ourselves and and what we're doing here. Yeah, Um, that's that's right. It's like a, it's like a prerequisite or a precursor in a way. Um, Of course, we're not all going to be vision quest guides and rewilding facilitators through the process. Um, people discover their gifts in in so many different ways, but there's there's a, a necessity in um, in coming into 
deep, intimate, imaginative, conversational relationship with the more than human world, with the elements, with um, with our with our place on the planet, a, a sense of um, f- comfortability in the wilds, a sense of be, you know, in a way like knowing how to read the language of nature, not in a kind of um, naturalist sense, but just in a kind of feeling bodied sense, how to be in deep relationship with the more than human world, which f- does feel like a an essential part of of knowing ourselves more fully because we are one one strand in this web one one part of this um, vast intelligence this Gaian consciousness uh, and we can't really know ourselves when we you know within a kind of silo yeah. we need we 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 yeah our our ability to know ourselves is interdependent with our ability to to know the world to know ourselves mm-hmm. in relationship to the world i'm i'm feeling drawn to share a dream image with you mm, wonderful which even before you said that you got into depth depth psychology and dream work this dream image was popping into my mind to share with you um i don't know if you know but the first 35 episodes of this podcast which i began as the dreamer's den was all about dreams and so this was what we did all the time but <laughs> Oh, wow. I, I suppose this dream came to mind because of knowing that you know how and have really gone in completely to keeping yourself alive and well in the bush. Um, so I'm curious what reflections you might have on this. The, the dream is pretty brief. I'm in the living room of my childhood home, which has a very, very high ceiling. And a young man is reading to me from a book. And he says a sentence, I almost heard it in two versions in the dream, but it's something like, and you couldn't make the world safe. And that feels like a failure. Mm. And as he says it, I look in his eyes and I can see that he's feeling the impact and the truth of this. He's like, oof, like, oh, that's so true. You know? And I go over and hug him and hold him. And I say something like, yes, this is a, this is a scary time. And I, what I mean is climate crisis. And we have this unique sense of danger on an existential humanity level. But Mm. I say, so this, yes, this is a scary time, but there was never a safe time. Mm. I, I could have died and this, there could be an earthquake and this house could collapse on you. And I could have to say goodbye to you for this lifetime. Mm. And I'm, we're holding each other in this knowing of there's really no such thing. And there never has been mm. as making it safe. And when we can't make one another safe or make ourselves safe or make it feel like the humanity is going to be safe, we feel like we're failing, mm. but it's not the nature of things to ever be safe. Wow. Beautiful dream. When, when did you say you had this dream? it was late December Mm. yeah oh beautiful dream and was it mirroring some kind of inquiry or struggle that you were that you were having at the time well I am I live in this inquiry about ecological crisis and what how I contribute at my best while also thriving as a as a being who gets this precious life and so that dance between 
showing up in a way that I can make help life thrive as much as possible, even knowing that I can't make it all safe and last forever mm-hmm. um, and not, not swaying too far into fear, nor too far into, oh, everything's fine. We're all going to die anyway. So that's a very familiar territory. But I was also at the time going through some intense personal emotions um, mm. in, in the context of very human relationship that, that threw my sense of safety into question. Mm. So I, I know it was speaking to that too. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful multi-layered dream around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It speaks to me of, um, you know, Joanna talks about the, the opportunities of uncertainty and how, you know, our, our capacity for aliveness and intuition and creativity heightened in these times of uncertainty and unsafety, which is your dream points to is, has always been the case. It is the nature of reality. And and it's just kind of amplified at the moment with this planet time we're in, but yeah, that's the first thing that came to me hearing your dream is it kind of pointing to the, the opportunity of it being something that enlivens us. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I'm curious too about if you experienced anything around that dynamic in when you were learning tracking and wilderness survival skills and living in the bush for a year, that, that question about keeping yourself safe, did that come up for you? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I was just kind of reflecting on your dream and the, the different layers of it. And there was, there was something for me about the pull, the pull to learn these skills of self-reliance, like to, to hone these skills of self-reliance. Um, in a way, in a way it, it, it did touch in on this kind of, um, you know, ultimate safety of, of relying or being able to rely in some way on my own my own wit, you know, my own skills. And there was something incredibly empowering in that for me. It was, it was more a kind of project of, yeah, the kind of like sense of competency that I could, uh-huh. I could, I could do, if I could do this, if I could light fires every day without matches and care for myself in this very fundamental way, then I can do anything. Um, and it was, it was a really powerful um yeah, these the skills themselves were very powerful doorways into um, a sense of yeah personal empowerment and yeah possibility for myself. But it was interesting the kind of the other layer around safety that that sparked for me in that year was I was I was leaning into fear. You know, there was I had a whole heap of fears. There was fear of wild dogs. There was fear of the dark. There was you know just fear of being alone all the time and. Mm-hmm. And so I was, but I was also really drawn to leaning into fear, to leaning into that edge of safety. So, you know, taking myself off on overnight wanders where I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have a phone. I, you know, so I was was intentionally creating situations where I was um, confronted with the fact that I, you know, I wasn't safe in some way, like I, you know, no one knew where I was. I didn't have a phone and, and, and that aliveness that came from that and that sense of, I just had to trust in my own capacity mm-hmm. and in the, just in the unfolding and in the, yeah, and being held in some larger sense of trust in mystery. Um, 
But the kind of flip side of that in a way during that year was because I was spending so much time alone, which I'd never done before, you know, I was 31 at the time, what started to kind of crack open was a lot of old childhood trauma, um, which was, I didn't really know it at the time. It was just these states of unsafety and uh, fear, like really strong fear, like terror that was that was kind of emerging. And it was purely because I was doing a lot of sensitizing. I was doing a lot of fasting and just a lot of wandering in time alone. And um, yeah, it's not something that I, you know, knew was coming. And it was, you know, just kind of really abandonment trauma, which I don't, still don't quite know exactly what it points to, but it was definitely pre-verbal abandonment trauma as I now understand it. But that was that ended up really being my my biggest challenge in terms of safety was this this old material that was coming up, bubbling up in this way of kind of terror and existential um, unsafety, which um, yeah, which has really been a lot of unpacking in the years since. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was kind of navigating those themes on on many levels out there. Yeah that that speaks to so much I feel like because saying how much it meant to you to have that capacity and to be able to take care of yourself is Mm. is kind of what I was feeling within this dream and you feel in waking life too about if we can make it work if we can survive if we can make it safe that's a success and Mm. and and not being able to do that is is some kind of failure in that lens that was coming through in the dream but also I really hear how you're speaking about just the sense of empowerment and the sense of capacity mm. and that that exists at the same time as surrender to the, to the reality of all that we don't ever have control over and how much of our experience comes from inside us anyway, the, mm. you know, with the old material coming up. That's right. Yeah. It, it brings to mind this kind of sense of, um, I was involved in some conflict resolution recently and there's this kind of phrase that someone brought to the experience, which was there's no such thing as safe space. There's only brave space. Yeah. I'm not sure I entirely, I'm, yeah, it's challenging in some ways, but it, it essentially is true. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think a certain, a certain degree of safety allows us to be brave in sure. that context, right? Exactly. Like we have a certain amount of trust that we can, yeah. we can risk it. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So I feel like I'm getting a really good sense of how, like you said, this magnetized you and mm-hmm. this, this feels like where you're supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to come back to what you said you felt early on about abandoning ship from the holding actions. Mm-hmm. Because so in several previous episodes, I've asked guests about the three stories of our time. You know, are we, how, how are each of us living in business as usual? How are each of us living in the story that this is a time of the great unraveling and everything is falling apart, no hope of repair. And Mm. how are we inhabiting the story of the great turning that we're making this transition in innumerable ways to a life sustaining way of being here. And Mm. so within that, the great turning story for listeners who haven't already heard me <laughs> describe this within that story, there's the three dimensions, the holding actions where we protect 
one another. We protect life on earth and living systems. And then the, the developing structural alternatives. How can we organize ourselves and provide for ourselves in a way that is sustainable? And then this dimension of the shift in consciousness, which is where it sounds like you're offering most of your energy and attention. And of course, all three are necessary and they all have a place. And some people are called to one or the other. And I, I've had a similar feeling of, oh, if I'm not focusing on holding actions on kind of the rescue and the protection side, I'm abandoning mm. places in need, beings in need. And so I just want to invite you to expand on that. And if you still feel that at all or how, you've, how you relate to that now. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's a yeah, good question, which is certainly um, an ongoing inquiry for me. At the time, as I spoke to it, was, um, it felt heartbreaking and like a betrayal that I, you know, that I would walk away from this, this great need which, you know, I saw the results of my actions take purchase. You know, we saved forests. We put more hectares in the reserve map. We affected change. Mm -hmm. so yeah. a, really, a really small group of us actually made substantial change, which might be a rarity, but it was my experience. We also had failures, of course. Um, but when I, you know, I could see the power of a small group of people committed to a cause or a particular intention, I could, I saw the power of that and how we, we were affecting change. Um, so it was, you know, and I had really strong mentors during that time. And that was part of the, the kind of difficulty was saying to them, you know, thanks for mentoring me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm off to discover the world and mm. you, you can, you can keep it all going. So that was, you know, that part of the feeling of betrayal of, of you know, this raggle-taggle group of wild activists that I'd pretty much spent the last, you know, eight years with walking away from that. And yet, and yet the pull was so strong to, um, you know, to explore my own relationship to the world um, and, a, and a greater, more individual purpose that it, I, yeah, I, I couldn't ignore it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't something I could override for very long. Um, and also because I'd started being in a paid role, it really changed the relationship um, to, to, you know, to being involved. It's, it's kind of a different thing. It's almost like I'm back in that business as usual story, you know, being a paid activist. It's, it's kind of like I'm still swimming in the same boat still. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um. So there was, yeah, so I, I moved quite firmly and, and strongly away from that sphere of activism for quite a number of years, like the pendulum swung, and I became, yeah, just very passionate about what's really needed here is the, you know, the shift in values, the shift in consciousness, the, the kind of under, you know, the, the kind of radical and deeper foundational shift and, and kind of cultural shift that we need can only come about through this journey of soul initiation, through deep nature connection, through kind of eco-awakening experiences. And 
yeah, and and where I sit right now is is um, is somewhere back in the kind of um, you know in the middle of the in that sphere of of activism, really seeing how incredibly important all three of those uh, models of change are, those what those modalities of change are, and. I was just talking to a friend the other day about my work and um, how I want to kind of find a way to bridge holding actions. I'm not quite sure what that is, but I, I feel like I want to bring it back into my organisation in some way, in the very least tithing some of my income to a not-for-profit organisation that is engaged in holding actions. Mm-hmm. That feels like a really immediate, tangible thing I can do, but I'm also kind of feeling into how can how can my organization my business also tangibly support or involve those who are in 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 holding actions or in the structural change um mm-hmm. you know because it really is this sense of this sense of in these times we're in we can't really silo ourselves off into one sphere of activism we can yeah. We really need all of them all at once. You know, how, how I'm going about this shift in consciousness, how I'm cultivating that and providing opportunities for that, how can that also reflect uh, support for and, and, and a stand for the other modalities of change? And I think it's possible. I think that's, that's a really exciting question I'm holding at the moment. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'm wondering if the people who come to go through experiences with you, do they tend to already be involved in some way in one of these dimensions? Or do you feel like you're helping open the door as well for people to become involved in some way that they weren't before? You know, I, I, I'm imagining, oh, maybe this, this uh, kindling of the reconnection is bringing forth more people, more yeah. of people's innate desire, you know, to contribute in one of these other ways too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I just ran a pilot program this last year called the nature-based leadership training, which was a year long training with 30 participants. Um, And we, we certainly, you know, went through the spiral and and went right into the three stories and the different spheres of activism and really tried to attract people from all different walks of life. And it, it was the first time that I've worked with a group of people over that period of time and, you know, a lot of them were under 30 and were coming from, um, you know, climate activism or, or different kind of on-ground activist projects and organisations. And it was so lovely and refreshing mm, cool. to be working with young people who are, you know, who are so passionately in that sphere of activism. And we actually, one of the practices we did, processes we did at the start was, you know, make a kind of mandala of these three spheres of activism and then people would kind of stand where they felt like they were most engaged in and then also start you know kind of let it be a bit fluid where are they most curious where are they where are they feeling like there's a kind of like a you know a gap in their awareness or in their knowledge and and just really working with that that sphere was quite powerful to kind of open people's awareness of how you know how how they can incorporate all the different spheres and where they feel naturally drawn and where it's been where it's changed over time Mm -hmm. so giving people a sense of like oh wow yeah I can you know I can actually shift from here to here if that's you know if that's where my kind of interest and appetite take me 
Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I feel really excited about um, kind of providing more space for that question. Yeah. What, what did you notice? Did, was, were there people in each sphere and did one tend to have the most energy or anything? I certainly noticed, and, and this I think reflects the people drawn to my work, most people were in the, the kind of shift of shifting consciousness. Uh-huh. Um, but there was, there was kind of like a natural movement in the kind of ages of like starting out, engaging in holding actions, and then having, um, you know, some movement throughout their lives as they mature into, into the, the two other spheres in different ways. And then there's this really interesting, which is what I'm experiencing now, this kind of circling back to yeah. the original love um and so interesting yeah it really is it really is interesting but I also just really appreciated those who were just like really firmly in one of the other two spheres like yep this is this is where my heart lies right now and just feeling how out of balance it would be if we were all in all in one sphere of action right right Mm. wow yeah I have so much gratitude for the people really committed to those tangible projects of holding actions and structural alternatives because that's I mean it's such necessary work we can't just shift our consciousness and then look around and realize there's nothing there's no living systems left to save right I mean hopefully it would never get that far but just to say you know they're all so essential and and they require a different type of work and effort and I completely believe that we are uh, our our skills and where our hearts draw us are distributed around them, you know, mm-hmm. but also being someone who's mostly spending time in the realms of Chinese medicine and dream work and these types of conversations. I talk to a lot of people focused on the shift in consciousness as well. Mm. So I've, I had an interview in episode two with my brother, who's working on structural alternatives very in a very practical way. And spoke with Liz Downs, who's devoted to the holding actions. And so, yeah, you know, just so much appreciation for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's um, really refreshing to, to kind of sit with them in their, in their world for time. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, as we're, as we're coming close to the end of our time here, I want to just open to you, if there's anything else that you would like to share with listeners and also if you have anything that you would invite people to do, if they're feeling inspired or want to dive in a little bit deeper, something they could try for themselves, even in the mm-hmm. next few minutes or, you know, yeah. something they could do soon. Yeah. Well, it's been, it's been so lovely to, to chat about all of this and to, um, to really revisit my, my foundational passion for the work that reconnects and how deep and wide it is. Yeah. Um, continues to inform and and um, surprise me in different ways. But yeah, the, the kind of practice that I was um, dreaming up this morning in the early hours of waking was something like this and I and I enjoy playing with this myself. It's a kind of you know in, in Joanna's spiral it would be the the a practice or process to support seeing with new eyes. And it's quite simple. It's heading outside on a wander. It can be anywhere in your suburb, outside somewhere, and, and imagining 
or assuming that everything is as interested and curious in you as you are in it. Mm. So this is this is something that uh, the Animus Valley Institute introduced me to this practice, and it's quite a seismic shift in perspective. Yeah, really opening up this kind of conversational um, nature of reality. Just what if what if everything was taking as much notice and was interested and curious in you as as you are in it in the tree, in the stone, in the sky, in the rain, in the clouds. If, if everything was was as open to meeting you as you were open to meeting the other, the wild other. So it's really opening to the wild other. And uh, it's just such a joyful, joyful, um, connective experience, assumption. And, of course, it's, it's not one that's too far from Indigenous understandings of, of um, relationship and and the opportunity for for knowing oneself for knowing that the wild other yeah yeah it's that i that feels exciting like going out into the the world aware of its awareness and yes yeah. exactly yeah that's yeah. great yes well if you do that you got to come leave a comment and tell me and claire how yeah i'd love to hear your what story. happens yeah definitely and so you've mentioned of course, your books and a couple of Bill Plotkin's books, and I'll I'll share links in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And where's the best place for people to find you and connect with you online? Yeah, so my website is naturesapprentice.com.au. And I yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who is moved or curious about what I've been chatting about. And um yeah, I look forward to hearing some of the stories from um your your wonder. All right. Fantastic. I'll, I'll put a link into your website as well to make that easy. And I look forward to hearing those too. So thank you again so much, Claire. I loved this conversation. I really appreciate you and what you're doing. Mm, my pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's been really enlivening for me as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Come to turningseason.com slash episode 10 to leave a comment on this episode. I'm always open to your suggestions about who to host on the podcast in a future episode. I've so loved connecting with each of these people and would be happy to hear your suggestions. And I will look forward to being back with you on the next full moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.